I want to thank everybody for joining us today uh, for this talk on patient-centric approaches to bone healing. My name is uh, Bob Zura. I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, looking forward to talking on this topic with you. The program information for today, this is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education. It's an LLC and it's an HMP company. Uh, and this program is supported by an educational grant from BioVenice. We have some specific learning objectives for today's talk. First, we're going to examine local and systemic factors that promote and inhibit fracture healing. We're going to explain the science, the mechanism of action, and the evidence for low-intensity pulsed ultrasound on bone healing. We're going to investigate the impact of compliance or non-adherence on medical costs and clinical outcomes. We're going to explore case studies illustrating clinical outcomes of fracture healing treatments. We're going to start with some very basic fracture healing tenets. I would imagine most everybody in the audience is familiar with these, but we'll walk through them quickly just to make sure we're starting at the same point. And I think it's important to remember that fracture healing is a natural phenomenon, and often our job as physicians is to, to merely uh, stand by and watch uh, nature take its course, uh, and that we should not interfere to cause problems. We're going to start with normal bone healing first, and I'm going to start uh, with a case example. And this is just a case from my practice from a few years ago. This is a, a young patient who sustained a fracture to their proximal right femur. Uh, and I think you could call this a uh, peritrochanteric or a subtrochanteric fracture. I would probably call it a peritrochanteric fracture uh, that requires uh, open reduction internal fixation. Uh, and that's what we did. Uh, we, we proceeded to treat this patient with a uh, intramedullary nail in a uh, recon uh, type uh, uh, implant. I feel that our reduction was adequate, and our goal again here is to hold the bone in place while nature does its job, and this patient quite quickly went on to make uh, callus to heal their fracture and to return to uh, normal function. And as I stated before, uh, Voltaire said this better than I, than I did, the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. Now, we did intervene in that femur fracture to uh, place a nail. Uh, all that did was hold it in place while nature healed the fracture. And how did that fracture heal? That fracture healed by secondary healing, but let's review primary and secondary fracture healing. Primary fracture healing is actually not the most common, uh, nor the natural process of fracture healing. Uh, that would be secondary or callus formation. Primary fracture healing requires an anatomical reduction of the fracture ends. There needs to be no gap, and there needs to be stable fixation. And often that stable fixation should also include compression of the fracture ends. And when these requirements are fulfilled, healing ensues in a primary method, and that's also a method of cutting cones. So very simply, the bones heal in the same way that they remodel. So osteoclasts will form the cutting cones and osteoblasts will follow in and, and, and make new bone and that fracture heals without callus. It heals in a primary fashion. 
Now, the example we gave was secondary fracture healing, and this is the most common form of fracture healing. It's what we're, most of this audience should be familiar with. In secondary fracture healing, both endochondral and intramembranous healing occur. It does not require rigidly stable conditions and callus formation forms. And in fact, you don't want it to be overly rigid. You're trying to find that perfect balance of stress and strain so that there's enough motion to form callus, but not so little motion that it doesn't heal or too much motion that your implant or the, the fracture can't stay aligned. We have a cartoon here that, show, that goes through the four stages of bone healing that you get with secondary fracture healing. Again, when the, when the patient breaks, uh, there's an acute inflammatory, res inflammatory response. There's a hematoma that forms. And assuming that everything is proceeding in the natural course, it then goes to that uh, top right position. You get a cartilaginous callus formation, so that hematoma sort of remodels into cartilage. And, uh, and then you get to the bottom left and you get ossification of that callus. So that, that callus background all of a sudden starts showing up on x-ray as bony healing. Uh, and you get that nice, robust football-shaped callus. And then you go on to bone remodeling in the normal stages of bone healing. And that's where the bone, through Wolf's Law, remodels itself, similar to primary fracture healing, and, and gets back to a more normal shape. That cartilaginous callus formation truly is a key feature of secondary fracture healing and fracture healing. You end up getting endochondral formation between the fracture ends. This brings some stability to the fracture, uh, and then it will ossify secondarily. And the generation of this callus is dependent on the recruitment of mesenchymal stem cells. And this will be a bit of a theme throughout the talk. And as we get into uh, deeper into the talk, talking about low-intensity pulse ultrasound, some of these same stem cells, some of these same growth factors will come up again. That's why I want to give you the basic science background here in the talk. So again, here is just a, a bit of alphabet soup uh, uh, demonstrating uh, the recruitment of mesenchymal stem cells and then the, uh, the factors that come along with them. And some of those you're familiar with, like platelet-derived growth factor, TGF, which is transforming growth factor, IGF, was insulin-like growth factor, and then BMPs, which is bone morphogenic proteins. I think that uh, you're familiar with that. But again, so these cells come in, they, they're pluripotent, and hopefully in, in this setting, they become cartilage and bone uh, to allow for fracture healing. Critical to any of these processes to occur normally is that we have blood supply and revascularization. So again, you need that initial hematoma, you need a perfused fracture, and then some of these stem cells and some of these factors will recruit new vascular ingrowth, which brings further ability to bring in more growth factors and remodeling of the fracture. So you need factors that bring in new blood vessels as well. That endochondral cartilage, that cartilage callus, then needs to become bone to, to achieve bony union and to achieve callus formation. And that primary soft callus, that cartilage callus, is resorbed and replaced by a hard bony cartilage. A cascade of factors initiate the resorptions of this primary callus. So again, very similar to the response to fracture bringing in stem cells and growth factors, we need that for the continuation of secondary bone healing to go from cartilage to bone. 
Uh, I've heard it pronounced WINT, but the WNT family of molecules helps to regulate uh, the osteoblastic bone uh, formation. And again, you want those factors to be present and you need blood vessels to get them there. And this is all a balance. This, this remodeling of bone uh, requires that, that balance in the cutting cones where the osteoclasts are resorbing bone and the new bone is being de deposited by the osteoblast. Very similar to when the cartilage is going away, but as you remodel, you need osteoclastic and osteoblastic driven by these factors again. So that was just a nice brief history of normal bone healing, again, focusing on secondary healing and callus formation, and some mention of the factors and the cascade of events that has to happen for that to happen normally. As orthopedic surgeons and, and, and as uh, practitioners who take care of people with broken bones, we also know that sometimes it doesn't go as well as we would like, and we end up with abnormal bone healing. And we're going to spend most of the day talking about abnormal bone healing and non-unions and, and options there. So when doesn't it go right? Uh, I'm going to give you a, a, a case. Uh, this happens to be from a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Mehta, who's a, a world-class orthopedic surgeon in Pennsylvania. I didn't choose his case uh, because I didn't, that I don't have them that don't go well. It just was a nice case that he put together previously for us. And I thought it uh, gave a good example of uh, when it doesn't go well. This was a 31-year-old female, fell and slipped on ice, and had an open tibial shaft fracture, something most everybody listening is taken care of. And here are the initial x-rays. Again, uh, clearly not a uh, terrible soft tissue injury on the, on the plane films, a short oblique fracture uh, that Dr. Mehta did in irrigation to Breedmont and, uh, and an early internal fixation with anatomic reduction with an intramedullary nail. I'll spare some of the paths that get there, but we've all had this happen to us in our career where uh, things don't go quite as planned. And this patient, unfortunately, uh, was likely infected, wasn't healing, required hardware removal. And I think once we start to see a frame like this in place, we, we know that things are not going down the path we like. The fracture doesn't uh, exhibit callus formation and, in fact, shows a little bit of resorption. Uh, we've all been here and, and we all don't like being here. She has draining from those pin sites, there's no callus, her soft tissue's poor, and she's infected. So unfortunately, we're going down a path uh, that doesn't appear to be a quick or secondary bone healing. Here you can see they've resected the bone ends due to infection, placed an intercalary spacer with uh, antibiotic cement to get stability and, and, a, and a pretty simple frame. Here's just a picture of that clinically, an antibiotic nail with some antibiotic spacer around it, attempting to get to a mascalay. You can see your poor soft tissue envelope uh, here as well. And unfortunately, at 14 months after injury, this is where Dr. Mehta and his patient ended up. So fracture did not heal. It did not get secondary bone healing and ended up with a below knee amputation, unfortunately, in, in this case. And there could be a great number of factors that contribute to that. We want to investigate today some of the uh, paths that get us there and some of our treatment options to potentially prevent this type of outcome. So when does fracture healing fail? What are, the, what are the causes? What are the reasons why the first fracture went on to heal so nicely and the second fracture didn't? I think we all know inherently some of this is patient-related, some of this is surgeon-related, and some of this is uh, probably a, a bit of a roll of the dice and luck. So I'm going to try to define non-union for you, and I think that's a bigger and a more challenging question than perhaps you've considered before. 
Now, the FDA defines non-union as nine months of elapsed time with no healing progress for a three-month period. I think there's some real challenges with this definition. I think it's subjective. I think it's arbitrary. It's the same for all bones. Would we expect a tibia and a femur to heal in the same amount of time? I don't think many folks would. And it's the same for all ages, an 18-year-old and an 80-year-old. Should they heal at the same, same rate? Can we define them as delayed union or non-union at the same time? I think not. So I think this is quite a poor definition uh, that the FDA leaves us with. So I don't think we're able to define non-union clearly that everybody agrees on based on their definition. Most trauma surgeons, most trauma surgeons have a more pragmatic definition uh, of non-union. I think they would define that as a fracture that has no potential to heal without further intervention. The problems there, however, are when can you decide that? Perhaps a soft tissue envelope so bad at day one that you think it's not going to heal, but I don't think that would be appropriate to call something a non-union on day one. Perhaps other surgeons, or if it's your own patient, you may wait longer thinking that it's going to heal. So I think we're a, a, a real problem with when you apply that definition. So I'm going to postulate or present that I don't think we really have an acceptable definition of non-union. Think about the implications for that. It makes it very difficult for us to discuss with patients, to discuss with insurance companies, to define it for surgeries, and to define it for uh, research. So it's challenging. And if you can't define it, you see what I put there is the paradox. If you can't define it, how can we even study it? And as we get to some non-union studies later, I, I want you just to recall this. Do we all agree on the definition? And how can we do great non-union research? So if we can't define non-union, can we at least define the incidence or prevalence of non-union? Do we know how often it, it occurs? And just as a and background here, I'm going to use prevalence as we go forward, and I'm not even sure it's totally correct. Uh, but it's, it's the way the literature that I'm quoting uh, reports it. But prevalence tells us how widespread a disease is in a population. Incidence refers to the number of new cases of the disease in the population in the year. And in this case, the disease is non-union that we're talking about. So prevalence would be all the non-unions. Incidence really would be the new cases each year. In studying the etiology of a disease, it's, it's the incidence that's more important. So I opened... Uh, Rockwood and Greens, and, and this is chapter 25 on Rockwood and Green, and it's principles of non-union treatment. So this is all non-unions. This is not any particular bone. This is just their general overview chapter of non-unions. And you can see that they quote here, failure of an acute fracture to progress to timely union may be caused by a myriad of factors leading to an estimated prevalence of 2.5%. So one of our uh, primary Fracture textbooks is saying non-unions happen about 2.5%. So where do they get that number from and what bones are they talking about? So their reference, so that, there's that same quotation at the top from Rockwood and Green, the seventh edition, and their reference is from Milan's paper in Injury in 2007. And Dr. Sen's reference goes back to Dr. Pfeiffer's paper in JBJS in 2006. So a fairly recent reference. And what, uh, what Pfeiffer and their group looked at was uh, they looked at 22 series looking at 5,000 fractures, which is a large number of fractures. And they found out that the uh, non-union rate was 2.5%. The combined prevalence of delayed union was 4.4%. They used 21 references. And you'll just see as I go through these next few slides, these are just some of her 
reference it, and you'll see that references one through four are all the tibia, 12 through 20 are all the tibia, and 21 through 28 are all the tibia. So, and one is even a free vascularized bone graft, not the tibia. So, uh, their references, and, and again, the general overview of all non-unions, they really are giving us a vast majority of tibial references. So do we truly understand or know the incidence or prevalence of non-union in all bones? And I would argue that we do not based on this reference and we do not based on uh, these papers alone. So unfortunately, I think we're left at a point here where we cannot define non-union universally. We can't define it in a way that's accepted by all surgeons and we can't define it in a way that's accepted by all insurance companies and we can't define it in a way that allows us to perfectly study it. That's a real challenge. And we don't even know the prevalence of non-union for all bones. So I think that's why a lot of us tend to use anecdotal uh, and experience-based uh, information on predicting non-union or, or advising patients. But clearly we know what causes non-unions, right? I think as surgeons, we're all quite confident in that. And I want to delve quite a bit deeper into that literature. And unfortunately, I'm going to argue again that we don't know it that well. I think there's some factors that we know are associated with poorer healing and thereby higher rate of non-unions. Certainly open fractures, and open fractures are a spectrum. And this picture here is you know, a 3B or a 3C or, or perhaps even a, a near complete amputation. Uh, as you get higher energy fractures with more bone devitalization, more severe associated soft tissue injury and bone loss, I think that's fairly well established that that's a high risk factor, a local risk factor for non-union. Unfortunately, in Dr. Mehta's case, we ended up with an infection. Infection is a risk factor for bones to not heal and to go into non-union. These are fairly well established and, and I think fairly well accepted, so we won't argue those. Now, you can also have a closed injury, and this is a, clearly a, a photograph of a high Cherny grade. So it's a closed injury. It was still with massive soft tissue injury. Uh, do we know the effect of different Cherny grades? So can we even... Uh, quote those reliably in, in, in the same manner. So uh, soft tissue injury here, but in a different type of soft tissue injury. I don't know that we know how this magnitude of injury impacts non-union. And then we get to systemic factors influ influencing non-union. And I think these biologic factors are, are perhaps not as well understood as we think. I'm going to walk through a couple, and then I'm going to walk through some literature for us. Smoking and nicotine. I imagine every fracture surgeon at some point in their career has asked their patients to stop smoking or to not use nicotine to increase their chances of healing. Uh, perhaps this works through decreased blood flow and de decreased oxygenation to the bone. We talked quite a bit earlier about needing vascularity and increased vascularity. So if you do something that decreases that vascularity, you may increase your risk of non-union. Uh, perhaps bio, biochemically it works by inhibiting ALK-FOS in uh, collagen production, and you need those that collagen production to make your callus and to, and to, and to make your callus bony and hard. Uh, perhaps it inhibits collagen deposition. Diabetes. Patients with diabetes we feel are at high risk for non-union and poorer healing. Perhaps this is because it's peripheral a peripheral vascular disease or a small vessel disease, that you're not getting blood flow to the, uh, the end unit, which in this case is the bone. 
Perhaps it's due to peripheral neuropathy and patients not having as much uh, protective sensation. Perhaps they're uh, putting too many forces across their fracture and, and uh, leading to instability uh, and too much motion at the fracture and they don't heal. I know NSAIDs have been a, a great concern uh, for potentially influencing fracture healing. There's been some change in the pendulum recently on this, uh, but I don't know that we know definitively if they're uh, problematic or not. Uh, they, they impact prostaglandin E2 inhibition. There is a correlation between NSAIDs used for more than four weeks in non-union, and COX-2 inhibitors may inhibit fracture healing more than other NSAIDs. Uh, how does this compare to uh, opioids? How does this compare between the different uh, NSAIDs? I, I don't know that we know that. In osteoporosis, perhaps this is a, a biologic risk factor for non-union. Get altered bone metabolism, delayed callus maturation, delayed fracture healing. Uh, just a cartoon there of, of what the bone matrix looks like between normal bone and osteoporotic bone. Uh, but perhaps these are factors that lead to non-union. Maybe that's just a surrogate for age, or maybe it's the other way around. But I think that many of those are factors that we've all been quite comfortable with to some degree or another in our practice, and, and I want to dive into that a little bit more. But with any of those topics, were they evidence-based? And I think it's not as well based on the evidence as we may realize, and I want to walk through that literature for this audience. This is just a paper we put together for JBGS Reviews looking at biologic risk factors uh, for non-union of bone fracture. And our assumption uh, was that many risk factors for non-union were well supported in the literature, and we talked about those early on. Uh, what fracture, the fracture site itself, surgical treatment, the bony displacement, the type of fixation, treatment delay, comminution, inadequate treatment, wound infection, those sort of local factors. However, our systemic review suggests that patient-related or biologic causes may not have been as well understood as we, as we wanted. So I think when I was talking earlier, the open devitalized fracture, pretty well understood in the literature, but the smoking, the NSAIDs, and the other biologic factors may not be as well understood as we, as we thought. And I'll argue that the non-union literature is actually quite poor. So again, from that same paper, we did a, a systemic uh, review of PubMed, and we chose to go back 20 years. We chose that sort of randomly, but you have to pick at some point where you're going to stop pulling articles. A couple things to note, we found 361 articles looking at non-union from 94 to 2014 we published this. 154 of the articles demonstrated positive association, so the factor they looked at was causative of non-union. However, 122 demonstrated negative association, so the factor they were looking at did not, was not causative of non-union. We were happy to see that interest in non-union has increased recently, meaning there are more articles, and if you look at that graph, you can see the number of articles per year is, is going up. So we feel that by looking at that, we, we found a, a sweet spot for the number of articles we looked at. And we, the average number of about 188 patients per study that uh, we looked at in this study. So what did we find? Uh, we eliminated uh, bones that were only studied once. I didn't think there was enough literature to know about that particular bone. And 253 of the articles examined the risk for non-union. 45 of those were prospective, and we'll talk about that again. So here is just a, a list, and it's a very busy slide. I'll give you some time to look at it. But what this is, in the last 20 years, this is the prospective studies addressing non-union in these bones. So if you look at 
your find your favorite bone on the left, and then we can walk across. And let's just pick one here. We'll look at the tibia. I'm a trauma surgeon. I don't like tibia fractures because they don't heal sometimes. So there's 34 studies in the last 20 years looking at non-union in the tibia. Only five of those are prospective. Move down to scaphoid. Last 20 years, only 15 papers on scaphoid, but only two of those are prospective. So you just have to, you know, evidence-based doesn't mean it has to be prospective, but as we get to, we want higher and higher levels of evidence. So I think this is clear from this chart that the amount of prospective studies looking at non-union is actually quite low. And unfortunately, I think that means that our literature is, is poor for non-union. Now we're going to look at these is an even busier slide for you. And this is the number of studies in which each potential risk factor was evaluated. And again, from those years 94 to 2013. And you can again pick your favorite factor on the left. If you just go down two, two levels to age, you'll see there's 62 studies that looked at age and non-union. 38 of the studies had positive outcomes, meaning that they, when they looked at age specifically, they thought it was causative of non-union. However, 24 of the studies said that there was not an association, and they were negative outcomes. So 61% of the papers looking at age said there was a positive correlation. However, 40% said there was not. Move down to smoking. So again, these are papers that look specifically at smoking as a risk factor for non-union. You'll see there's 25 studies. 16 have positive correlations. So 16 of the 25 studies that looked at smoking as cause of non-union suggest that it is correlated. However, nine that looked at smoking did not show a correlation. So unfortunately, this means some of the factors that we believe so strongly are associated with non-union, it's not supported by the literature. Again, that doesn't mean that they are or they are not. It's just the literature doesn't support it which does make it challenging for us to instruct patients and it makes it challenging for us to design perfect studies. Again, I'll, we could give you this slide or you can come back to it, but again, you can find your favorite factor as you go down. And we'll walk through a couple of these more, more closely. So we are arguing that there's a discrepancy that exists between the ambiguity of the orthopedic literature and the near unanimity in interpreting that literature. And I'll, I'll show you that graphically here in a second. We're going to look at age and smoking and diabetes and NSAIDs in particular. So we surveyed 335 orthopedic surgeons, and that's where I get the where we're saying it was nearly unanimous. And then we're going to look at what the literature says, just to compare what we believe as surgeons to what the literature says. So when, when you look at age, 82% of the surgeons surveyed felt that age was a risk factor. The literature only supports it 61% of the time. We walked through that in the graph earlier. What we found here is that this was a variable effect by bone. It was a strong risk factor in the clavicle, but weak for the humerus. And age could be a surrogate for other risk factors. And this becomes an issue. We talked about the number of prospective studies. If there's just a few number of good studies on the humerus, do we have good data? Smoking, 98% of orthopedic surgeons that were queried said that it's a risk factor. However, only 64% of the literature suggests that it is a positive correlation. So there's a mismatch between what surgeons believe and what the literature supports. Doesn't mean one's right or wrong, but there just is a mismatch. 
Again, smoking is confirmed as a risk factor in 64%. We found papers that there was a positive correlation in the clavicle, the scaphoid, the scapula, the humerus, the tibia, and the femur. However, there are also negative studies that suggested no link between smoking and nonunion in the tibia and the femur and the humerus. So you can see there's a problem here. In the tibia, there's three studies with 314 patients suggest a positive correlation, but two studies of 75% that suggest no correlation. And 36% of recent studies failed to demonstrate significant relations between smoking and nonunion when you look at it that other way. That's impressive. Diabetes. Again, 97% of surgeons felt it was a risk factor. The literature only supports it 71% of the time. NSAIDs. Again, 86% of surgeons queried at this time. I think that number could potentially be lower now. It's only supported by 50% of the literature. Other risk factors that we, we see this issue uh, in the literature, obesity, 75% of the time, alcohol, 80%, and osteoporosis, only 40%. So let's just look at that discrepancy for tibia just a little bit more closely. It's a, one of, you know, it's a case we showed earlier, and it is uh, a difficult uh, bone to get healed if things aren't going well. And I think if you look on the left, again, you can find those five, uh, look at smoking, you find five studies for tibia, three of them were positive, uh, but only 20% of those were prospective studies. So again, not a large number of studies in, in general, and a very, very low percentage, if you look at that fourth column, that were prospective. So we have poor literature looking at the tibia for non-union. And I'm going to argue the literature is actually very poor. It's, it's worse than we may think, and, and perhaps this shows it. So again, this shows those same sort of risk factors in that left column. Bone one, bone two, bone three, bone four, bone five. It's just the most commonly studied bone uh, in, for each of these uh, factors on the left. So if you go down to smoking, you'll see that there's, these are retrospective studies. There's only uh, humerus and tibia being studied. But again, you can see obesity, very few studies. Sex, very few studies. Diabetes, very, very few studies. And those are retrospective studies. And then we move on to prospective studies. And again, I think you can see, if you just look down below, infection, smoking, obesity, sex, diabetes, alcohol, there's no prospective studies in our literature looking at non-union. So uh, this is a real challenge for us. I, I think that we can't define non-union. We don't know its true incidence. The literature to guide us is actually extremely poor. We have some evidence. But again, it's very low quality. It's not a high level of evidence. Uh, so I, I think we could do better. And I think we need to do better. They asked, we had a, we, we did publish some on this and, and we could present that in another format. Uh, but we're gonna actually go on to look at some options for treating non-unions, even though it's been so challenging to define them. So how can low intensity pulse ultrasound help? Uh, we're going to discuss the literature, the science, the impact of compliance. We'll look a little bit at costs, and we'll look at cases. Uh, and I'd like to look at this as both for the prevention of non-unions and the treatment of non-unions. And if I say like this, again, that refers to low-intensity pulsed ultrasound as a, as a bone healing device. Start with a quick case. This was a 27-year-old woman. She was healthy. 
and she'd been treated at another hospital in uh, September of 2007. And then she relocated to, to where I worked, and she came to see me in February of 2008. So she's five months out, and locally, uh, all her other fractures are healed, but her one humerus had not. And her local surgeon, who's uh, a world-class surgeon, really is well-known, had planned to revise the humerus. Uh, she was pain-free at the time. But again, they were planning another surgery when her husband got a new job and she relocated to where I was working. And here's uh, some x-rays of her at five months out. Again, it's her left humerus. You can see that she's been fixed. She was fixed uh, at the index injury. And that is just a magnified view of the fracture. Uh, you could be potentially critical that there's some screws near the fracture site. But again, I think uh, expertly done, well aligned, uh, but you can still see fracture lines quite clearly, uh, not a lot of callus formation, if, if much, uh, maybe some little sclerotic pieces of bone in there, but I don't think it's healed. Now, I'm not arguing this is or is not a non-union, uh, but I, you know, decide for yourselves, if you think this fracture is going to change and go on to heal on its own, if this is the way it looks five months out. And I think that's why your local surgeon wanted to operate. And here's the lateral. Uh, and again, magnified view on the right, let you see it a little bit better. Again, I think you could, I think we all would agree that at least three of the four cortices aren't aligned. I'm not sure we can see that well under the plate there to see that cortice, but I think the medial cortex isn't healed. I don't think the, uh, the two cortices we see here are, are healed. So I think this is not healed. Is it a delayed union or non-union? I don't know that I know. So we discussed some treatment options with this patient. I ran an infection practice. We could take hardware out and get infection labs if we think that's a, a case. That's a bit of an extreme example. We could do a revision, ORIF, open reduction internal fixation. And again, that's what was planned for her locally. Uh, you could do a revision, ORIF, with shortening to get healthy bone ends together. Again, that would probably fall into very similar answers number two. You could convert it to a nail. Perhaps you think nails would do better. You could just watch her. Uh, which is reasonable because she was stable and she wasn't hurting. Or you could try low-intensity pulse ultrasound, and we did discuss that with the patient. So we discussed revision, which was her local plan versus lipus, and the patient really didn't want uh, non-operative care. She was frustrated that she wasn't healed uh, but wasn't quite ready for surgery again. We checked labs to be sure that uh, we didn't think infection was a potential issue here. Her uh, Said rate was 6, which was normal at our hospital. Her CRP, C-reactive protein, was 0.07, which was within normal range at our hospital. And her white cell count was 9.9, .9, which, again, was normal for our, our local environment. So we didn't think by labs or by exam that she was infected. So I didn't think that that required any intervention. So the patient chose lipus, and that's the path we went down. And we saw her four months after that, so we're now nine months out. And you can remember the, the way the fractures looked before, and this is the way she looked four months later. So between month five and nine, uh, she used lipus for 20 minutes a day, and this was the biologic response that we saw. I don't know if that response would have happened without some intervention. That's your, your call. But again, you can see the AP there and then the magnified view. Maybe still some fracture line present. There's the lateral, and you can still see the fracture line, but maybe some calluses on the, on the cortices. I wasn't totally sure, and I, I like clinical union and radiographic union in my patients, and uh, I wasn't convinced we had radiographic union, though she was doing fine clinically, so I got a CT, and that CT did confirm 
uh, that she still had persistent fracture lines. So I didn't feel that I could tell this patient she was healed. She was improving, but not healed radiographically. This is what the CT read was, subtle but persistent lucency, uh, without evidence of osseous bridging. So do we operate at this point? Do we continue lipis? We decided to continue with lipis because we saw a strong biologic response to it. And then I saw her four months later at 13 months post-op. And here's her final films. We felt that we had eradicated that fracture line. And we thought at this point we had both clinical and radiographic union. And we didn't have to uh, proceed with more surgery for this patient. So what is low-intensity pulse ultrasound? It, it is just that. It is an ultrasound machine, you know, not dissimilar from the one we use for diagnostics in the hospital, or uh, it's not that different than the one used for therapy, other than the intensity is, is much, much lower when used for bone healing. And you can see this is the way it's pulsed, uh, and you can see its frequency there. Uh, so it's a, it's a low-intensity ultrasound wave that's pulsed. This is just an example of the depth of penetration through soft tissue. So if you think of somebody's thigh and you need to get to a, a deep femoral nonunion or a deep femoral fracture, uh, that represents a transducer on the left at zero centimeters of penetration. And you can see that there's still an effect beyond 25 centimeters through soft tissue. 25 centimeters correlates to approximately 10 inches. So that's quite a thick uh, soft tissue envelope that you can get through. And, uh, we all have patients that perhaps are a little thicker than that, but you can see that the, the, you still get an effect even beyond that 25, mil, uh, 25 centimeters. This is just a, a photograph on the right of this model and uh, then a demonstration of the waves in this bovine tibia. And you see the, the ultrasound transducers at the top. You can see the waves of ultrasound coming down and contacting the outer cortex of that tibia. But what you also see is some of the waves penetrate the tibia and enter the medullary canal and would also get to the other side of the bone if this was not a transected tibia. The point being here that even if you need to choose a face of the bone that where the nonunion may not be, there is sort of a shear wave that wraps around the bone, but also uh, lipus that penetrates into the medullary canal and will give you an effect outside of just the area where the lipus is contacting the bone. And I think that's important if you start thinking about if we want to upregulate factors, if we want to stimulate cells, where are those cells located and, and am I impacting it with the lipus? Important to understand that there are no negative effects in the presence of metal implants. It's non-cavitating, it's non-thermal. Again, we talked about how low intensity it was. No metal degradation, and there's no effect on screw stability or torque removal. Now, that being said, it doesn't penetrate metal like it penetrates the tibia in the last slide. So it's important if you have the soft tissue envelope to allow it that you place your transducer in a way that the plate or the metal is not directly impacted to maximize your effect of the lipus. I'm going to walk through some of the uh, clinical data uh, for lipus. We're going to start with fresh fractures and then we're going to look at non-unions. So this is the clinical data on indicated fresh fractures. This is Heckman's study from JBJS in 94. 
Remember about the level of evidences we were talking about earlier for non-union, and it's up to you to decide if you think these studies are well-designed or not and what level they are. But this is a prospective, it's a randomized, it's a placebo-controlled, double-blinded, multi-center study. The fractures that were included were acute or grade one open tibia fractures. And I'll remind you, that was really Gustio's definition, that they were treating their grade ones in the, in the cast this way. So I think a very reasonable choice of fractures. It had to be short oblique or transverse fractures with less than 50% displacement. Again, quite reminiscent of Gustio's indications. And the patients either received a placebo or an active lipus, and they were treated for 20 minutes a day until healed. Definition of union was three cortices bridged and no pain on weight-bearing or palpation. And I think it's important to remember when you look at the number of days here and compare it to our next study, but it's 154 days for the placebo-controlled tibias to heal, and that's what we would expect, probably five months or so for a tibia to heal. In the group, the 33 patients that received lipus, you can see they healed at 96 days. That was an acceleration of 38% in these tibia fractures. Now, this is Christensen's study. This is also in JBJS in 1997. This is a... Uh, prospective, randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind, multi-center study looking at fresh radius fractures. These are acute distal radius fractures treated conservatively, which I know is not always the way it's done today. And again, there's a placebo group and a treatment group, and the treatment group received 20 minutes of lipus per day until three cortices were bridged. And again, I am pleased to see the same amount of acceleration. You see 38% acceleration again, but the days are different, right? The distal radius heals quicker. They heal in about 98 days with placebo control, healed at 60 days. So that's a month difference. Think about the impact on patients with that. It was two months or three months earlier in the uh, tibia. There's the tibia again. again you, you've saved 60 days or so, so you saved two months there and a month with the distal radius in the groups that receive lipus. Look at some non-union clinical data now, uh, focusing on lipus. And again, we've made it clear and, and, and beaten the point home that it's, it's very difficult to define non-union, very difficult to study non-union. Uh, so let's look at these studies and keep that in mind. Uh, because of that difficulty in defining them and the rarity of them, if, if Dr. Uh, if the chapter was right that it's 2.5% of the time, our study suggested it was 4.9% of the time, but again, it varies by bone. There's not, not all of us have a lot of non-unions. So this is Mayer's study. It's a prospective case series looking at 36 non-unions and 64 delayed unions, again, defined by the surgeons. But to be included, they had to be stable, vital fragments. They had to have blood supply, no evidence of infection, could be atrophic or hypertrophic fractures, had to be at least 90 days since the last surgery or treatment change and at least 120 days since fracture. These patients, uh, the only change that these patients received was 20 minutes a day. And again, I think if you use, if you think back to the pragmatic definition of non-union, that this fracture won't heal without intervention, and you're defining some of these as non-union, you really can't get a, a placebo. It would be inappropriate to put to your IRB that I, I define this as a patient who needs something to heal, but I'm going to randomize them to placebo. You really can't do that. So all of these patients were treated, and all of these patients received lipus for 20 minutes a day. 
you can see overall non-unions, average fracture was 680 days, even though we said it had to be at least 120 days old. The average fracture was almost two years old. 86% of those non-unions went on to heal with the addition of lipids. Of the atrophics, 83% went on to heal. That was 84 fractures. And the hypertrophics, 100% went on to heal. Similar study here uh, to the first. This is Nolte's study from Journal of Trauma in 2001. It's a prospective case series of 29 non-unions, 5 atrophic, 12 hypertrophic, 12 oligotrophic. Mean fracture age was 1.2 years. Mean time after the last surgery was one year. An average of 1.4 failed surgeries. Uh, and the only change of treatment was lipids for 20 minutes a day. And here you can see overall, again, 86% heal rate overall in all of these 29 non-unions. Of the smokers, 82% went on to heal. And those who never smoked, 100% went on to heal. Gebauer's study. Prospective case series of 67 non-unions, inclusion had to be stable, no infection, at least eight months old, at least four months since the last intervention, at least three months without radiographic healing. Their mean fracture age was 39 months of so three years old. They had a mean of two failed surgeries. Only treatment change was lipids for 20 minutes a day. And again, you see 85% of those fractures went on to heal. So we're getting pretty similar results between these studies, 86, 86, 85. 89% of Gebauer's patients use the device. And I think that's an important point, that if your patients are not compliant with whatever treatment intervention you choose, it's going to be challenging for them to uh, benefit from it. This chauffeur's paper is about as good as we can get in non-union, delayed union studies, in my opinion. I think we're near the top of the mountain here. And I'll explain why I think that. So this is a level one randomized control trial. So how can this be randomized? I told you earlier it would be inappropriate to randomize this. The reason this can be randomized is that these were delayed unions, not non-unions. So Schofer and his team, by definition in their area, at three months if you're not healed, you're a non-union. But at the point when you become a non-union, they fell out of the study, the study ended. So if the patients went on to become a non-union, they then were given treatment. So they were not randomizing non-unions, they were randomizing delayed unions. And it was during that period that they were able to look at the effect of lipus. So that 101 patients with delayed union after tibia fracture, so that's after four, excuse me, I said three months, but that's after four months. And they were randomized either lipus or sham for the period between being defined as a delayed union and when they would be defined as a non-union. And the study outcomes were to look at bone mineral density and bone gap. It was not union, this is what they decided to look at. And what they found in those six, after 16 weeks, the patients treated with lipus, randomized to lipus, they had a 34% increase in bone mineral density at the fracture site. And that was significantly different than the patients who were treated with the sham device. They also had a mean reduction in bone gap, which also favored lipus treatment. Important again to mention here is that they had a 91% treatment compliance rate. And we've said this already, if you're not compliant, you have no chance of it being effective. The current uh, lipus device that's on the market had a change where a calendar was placed on it. And you'll see uh, the, the blue one is the newer device. 
And in, with the older device, with no calendar for the patient or the practitioner to follow, there was just a, a steady and gradual drop-off of usage. So that's compliance on the left uh, and treatment days on the right. And sometimes these non-unions take a while to heal. But what you see with the new device, you really sort of plateau at about 80% of compliance. And I think 80% compliance for trauma populations is, uh, is, is strong. Another paper that we put together on uh, chronic non-union, so we define chronic fracture non-union as those fractures that were over a year out from injury. We felt that everyone would accept that definition, that a fracture that happened on an index day and now we're over 365 days out. I, I think most people agree that's when uh, that non-union would be acceptable as uh, being defined there. And we looked at the heal rate in a cohort of 767 patients with chronic non-unions. Again, this was based off of an FDA-required uh, perspective registry from 94 to 98. So the FDA reviewed these cases and reviewed the data that came in. Uh, there were over 11,000 patients in this registry, but the cohort of 767 non-unions that were over a year old is what we looked at. These patients' average number of surgeries was 3.1 surgeries before uh, being placed in the registry. Uh, the fracture had to be at least a year old and we recorded fracture date, treatment start date, treatment end date, and the outcome. A busy slide, I apologize, but you see when you look at all fractures, 86.2% of these non-unions over a year old went on to heal in all fractures. All closed fractures, about the same number. In fact, open fractures healed a little higher rate. You can pick your favorite bone on the left. We'll just go right down to tibia, which we've been talking about for much of today. 168 healed, 21 didn't. So 88.9% of the tibia fractures that were over a year old uh, went on to heal with the uh, uh, just the addition of lipus. We found that the fracture age did not significantly affect heal rates. That, that bar on the far, far right is fractures that were over five years old. They were non-unions over five years old. Lipus was added and 83% of them in this registry went on to heal. So again, in our cohort of 767 patients, we found an 86.2% heal rate. We found an 82.7% heal rate in the 98 non-unions that were over five years old. Fracture age was only associated with a slightly higher risk of treatment failure. What was not linked was smoking, BMI, being open or closed, number of prior surgeries, number of comorbidities, number of prescription meds. And we'll look at this a little bit higher. Perhaps lipus makes those patients with some risk factors act more normal, act more like a normal patient without risk factors. No significant difference in heal rate by location or fixation type. This is Leighton's paper, uh, again, a, a meta-analysis looking at the healing of fracture non-unions treated with lipus. They adhered to PRISMA guidelines. They found uh, fracture age had to be at least uh, three months uh, in human trials with more than 12 patients. Uh, they had 13 studies that met their criteria. They had 1,441 non-unions, and their primary endpoint was heal rate. You can see the subgroup analysis that they performed, again, looking at age, smoking, prior without surgery inter interval, number of prior surgeries. And what they found was an overall heal rate of 82% in this meta-analysis. What they found was that hypertrophic non-unions had a two times greater heal rate uh, than all other non-unions. And you can see down below that a prior without surgery interval of less than six months was associated with a more favorable heal rate. So if you think about uh, adding lipus, perhaps doing it earlier has some advantage. So this is a recent meta-analysis with strict controls and robust results. 
Life has had an overall treatment success rate of established non-union fractures of 82%, was more effective for hypertrophic non-unions and when used within six months after the last surgery. And they seem to be independent, heal rates seem to be independent of various factors commonly associated with delayed fracture healing, like smoking. Life to success rates were comparable to surgical intervention for established non-unions, so perhaps you have an option other than surgery for some of these patients. So let's look at smoking more specifically. I write here that smoking is a known risk factor uh, in fracture healing. That certainly is what we believe as surgeons. Does the literature support it? We've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, cigarette smoking does diminish vascularization at bone healing sites through the action of nicotine. So let's go back and look at that Heckman and, and, uh, uh, and, and those studies. When we look just at the smoking, this is Cook's study. So when he looks at the tibia, again, you can see the smokers, when they receive placebo, they're at 175 days. If you recall, we're at 150 days in the, non, in, the, in the whole study. So we've added another 20, 25 days or so. But with lipids, they heal 72 days faster. So that, that effect is magnified in the smokers. So it's, uh, addition of lipids makes the uh, smoking tibia fracture patients heal more normally heal like a patient who doesn't smoke. Same is true for the radius. Again, we're a little further out of 98 days. We had a 50 days of acceleration in the smokers uh, who receive lipids. One other uh, factor here, this is the percentage of lipids-treated smokers who developed a tibial delayed union. So those were fresh fractures, if you recall. Those weren't non-unions. Those were fresh fractures. Of the 14 patients who received lipids, and were smokers, none of them went on to delayed union. They all healed. However, six of the 18 patients who smoked and did not receive lipids went on to delayed union. So again, none of the smokers failed to heal. So how does this work? We've talked some about the uh, alphabet soup uh, of, of bone healing, and you'll recall some of those uh, cartoons from earlier on of secondary fracture healing. On the left, you see the transducer on the skin uh, over the fracture site. Uh, you get nano motion, not micro motion. It's, it's much smaller motion that when, as the waves impact that fracture hematoma. You can see in that cartoon uh, that the integrins on the cell surface uh, respond and uh, they uh, upregulate fracture uh, factors such as BMP, VEGF, and so forth. And those factors are required for enhanced endochondral ossification. So again, just a brief cartoon of, of how this works. We'll go a little bit more into that here. Again, lipid sends its stimulation through the uh, soft tissue in the skin to the fracture. Lipis activates the cell surface. It activates these uh, mechanoreceptors called integrins, and that initiates an intracellular cascade that leads to upregulation. What's upregulated? Up cell differentiation is upregulated, converting stem cells to osteoblasts to make bone to, to affect healing. VEGF, new blood vessels, are upregulated by lipis. BMPs, the whole alphabet soup of those are upregulated that are essential to creation of new bone and mineralization. We saw that in the Schofer study. Some of this is working through uh, the COX-2 pathways that's critical for production of PGE2. Again, just talking more about mechanism of action, you'll see here uh, top left angiogenesis. The dark blue is lipids. The control uh, is in the, uh, the tan box. 
you'll see increased angiogenesis, increased bone mineralization in the top right, increased VEGF down below, uh, increased increase FGF. So again, you can see upregulation. So these are basic science studies that, that demonstrate that upregulation uh, to you. This is just looking at uh, risk factors and, and diabetes, in particular, the lipase effect. So here, we're looking at VEGF on the left and neovascularization on the right. So you see the control, and, and that's the amount of, of, of protein of VEGF that's there. And then you take a diabetic animal, and that's in the middle, and you can see that they are significantly less than the control. But you add lipase to the diabetic animal, and it's statistically no different than the control animal. So once again, we're seeing that with the addition of lipase, these risk factors are normalized. So this mouse is acting like a mouse without diabetes when lipase is added. Neovascularization, same, same sort of a pattern on the right. The control, the diabetic animal, significantly lower, add lipase to that diabetic animal, and it's normalized. So we see a magnified effect in the, in the patients with high risk. Uh, and here again, we'll just see mineral deposition uh, with the ultrasound treatment is magnified uh, in this study uh, and mineralization of human fracture, human hematoma-derived progenitor cells. So again, so mineral in, in both animals and in human cells, you see an increased effect from lipase. Would you want to learn more about this? I'd, I'd refer you to this article uh, by Harrison and his team, which walks through these uh, studies uh, much more uh, in-depth than we have time for here. Is there an economic impact on accelerated healing or treatment of non-unions by lipase? Uh, so this is uh, Samir's paper. It's a health plan database study. Looked at matched patients with non-union surgery and lipase for non-union treatment. They looked at 12-month medical costs. They found 1,100 matched patients were identified in the surgery-only patients the medical costs were $6,289 higher than the lipase-only patients. So again, they looked at patients treated with and without lipase for the same injuries, and it costs more if they were treated without lipase. A lot of that has to do with the acceleration of healing. Now, uh, the, the NICE group is a group that advises uh, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence in the in what was the UK, I don't know what we're supposed to call it post-Brexit, uh, but for their, for their health plan, their national health plan, NICE gives them guidance. Uh, I'm not calling it lipase here. This is actually the brand name Exogen, but that is because the NICE uh, guidelines actually had specific guidance for, for uh, Exogen. Uh, and their guidance for Exogen is for use on non-union fractures. Their recommendation is that the case for adopting Exogen in UK National Health, ultrasound bone healing system to treat long bone fracture with non-union, they define it as nine months, is supported by the clinical evidence, and it shows high rates of fracture healing. So their recommendation is to adopt exogen as the treatment for non-unions. They said that there was a cost savings and from their information, and here it says exogen ultrasound bone healing system to treat long bone fractures with non-unions was an estimated cost savings of 2,407 pounds which would be more in dollars at the time this was published. Uh, and this is compared with the current management and through, by avoiding surgery. They also had recommendations for delayed union, that they uh, thought there was some radiologic evidence for improved healing when the exogen 
ultrasound bone healing system is used for long bone fractures with delayed healing defined as three months. I'm going to walk through one last case uh, for the group, and then we'll hopefully finish up on time for you. This is a 69-year-old male, came to see me seven months after his ankle fracture. He'd been treated in a boot, still had pain, been treated in a cast, still had pain. His local doctor had advised him to have surgery, uh, but he came to see me. He was surgery adverse. This was a magnif magnified view of the x-ray I got. And I wasn't sure if this was a radiographic non-union or not. This patient was clinically not healed. He was painful. But I thought perhaps there were some bridging cells there, or some callus. I, I was not sure. I got a CT scan. And these are uh, some selected images from the CT scan. I think it shows a couple things. One, clear fracture line. Met my definition of non-union. But what worried me if I had to proceed with surgery is that there was endosteal sclerosis. Particularly if you look on that proximal segment of fibula at the fracture site, there's sclerotic bone there. Uh, so if I was going to proceed with uh, surgery, I felt like I would have to remove that sclerotic bone, perhaps put bone graft in, perhaps get the fracture stabilized. Uh, and that, that would be a challenge to get in there to remove that, uh, that bone. Patient, again, was surgery adverse. Uh, we discussed lipus as an option for the patient, and that's the path he chose. Uh, he came back and saw me three months later. So this is the change between seven and ten months. Again, that's a magnified view of the new x-ray now. Uh, I had planned on getting a CT scan for him because even when he first came to see me, I couldn't tell if he was healed or not. Uh, so we, uh, we scheduled for a CT before he saw me. And what you'll see here is that CT scan. Again, what you see here is eradication of that fracture line. Resolution of that endosteal sclerosis. So that sclerosis has somehow been removed by activated osteoclast, and then the fracture, the non-union has been bridged by osteoblast. So he went on to heal and was clinically asymptomatic when we saw him at, at that 10-month mark. So uh, thank you very much for your attention. Uh, I hope it was worthwhile. Uh, I hope it was uh, somewhat informative. Uh, you will be redirected back to your landing page, and you can complete a post-test and evaluation and then you can download and print your certificate. And again, thank you for your attention, and have a great day.